0: Hey, it's Mike. Back in October of 2020, episode 88, I interviewed Max Maven. Max Maven was a giant in the world of magic, and I talked to him for over 2 hours, and then I put I put the I released the first hour and then put the second one on Patreon. Well, I I've just found out that Max passed away on November 1st. Another Magician friend of mine told me, actually, he was impressed that I had him on my show in the first place. I was impressed that I had him on. I went back and I listened to all two hours of it, and I just wanted to condense it and make it free. Basically, I just really enjoyed talking to him, and I wanted to share it one last time. I didn't know Max Maven. This is the only time that we ever talked, other than a couple times on email, I just liked what he did, and I found him fascinating to talk to, but I hope you enjoy it, and if you do, I encourage you to find more of his stuff. So let's get into it with the way that I introduced him back in 2020. Max Maven is a magician and mentalist who's been on hundreds of TV and radio shows all over the world. Mork and Mindy, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, General Hospital, World's Greatest Magic on NBC... He was named as one of the 100 most influential people in the field of magic in the 20th century. He's worked as a consultant to David Copperfield, Siegfried and Roy, Doug Henning, Penn and Teller, Lance Burton, and a ton more. This dude is a legend in the world of magic. If you know nothing about magic, you've at least seen his face. I had a great conversation with him, and I started the way anybody would when they talk to a legend. I asked about professional wrestling. Here is my conversation
1: with Max Maven.
0: What is, in your opinion, this is very important for our icebreaker, the greatest professional wrestling heel promo <laughs> of all time?
1: Wow. Um, of all time. That's, there's a lot of people to sort through to get to the answer. I, I would say off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of a specific promo, but just a body of work. Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman. It's just gangbusters. Yes.
0: I, I was thinking... And knows
1: how to get a crowd to hate him.
0: I, you're, I've, I've thought about this for not nearly enough time, but your name is Max Maven. You've ch- totally chosen uh, the way that you look down to a T. I've seen you on television with pentagram earrings. I feel like magic <laughs> and mentalism's gain is pro wrestling's loss. You would have been the ultimate heel manager maybe ever. Paul Heyman would be on a podcast with me talking about you.
1: Well, I, I, I think that's probably overly <laughs> generous, but, uh, but I am a big wrestling fan and, and actually have become friends with a, a few key figures in, in that world. Uh, I think there is a huge overlap between the, the, mentality if you will of creating pro wrestling and the mentality of creating magic mind reading those impossible things they, they they deal with a lot of the same issues uh they deal with belief systems i mean i've seen people go out and turn the crowd in other words the crowd may start off hating them and they manage to get that crowd to change their minds within a matter of minutes and get this huge crowd to suddenly shift almost as one to saying, oh, I like this guy now, or vice versa. Right. And that's pretty amazing. Uh, uh, I have, uh, in, in my work, I have had the experience of having to turn a crowd, but I, I don't know that I've ever done it with that kind of efficiency and speed. Generally speaking, audiences want to be led somewhere. Uh, in the case of a comedian, the audience says, "Lead me somewhere where I wind up laughing." Right. Uh, in some circumstances, particularly if they know the performer, uh, they may say, "Lead me somewhere where I'm going to laugh, but sneak in some knowledge. Let me let me lo- come out of this learning something." Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. So in wrestling, uh, I don't think the "teach me some knowledge" part is paramount for most wrestling fans. But certainly they want to be led somewhere where they're going to get a chance to get angry and vent or where they're going to be able to laugh and and be ecstatic because the underdog triumphed or or all sorts of kind of uh, massive uh, storytelling tropes that are suddenly happening live in front of them. When I hear
0: stories and I'm a complete layperson outsider when I hear stories about Di Vernon tracking card sheets down or R- Richard Turner knowing some or Ricky Jay knowing some or David Blaine talks about it how does that how do those types of people like come across each other is it something that a magician searches for are you well, that's all- a
1: really interesting question and you've named four people all of whom I knew or or know uh, they are different each in their approach. Uh, and of course they also are from different time periods and, and things do change. Um, there are sort of underground networks, if you will, uh, in the gambling field, in the gambling cheating field, I should say, uh, and also underground networks in the magic field. Magic, uh, on the surface is very sort of, uh, fraternal, uh, and, and there are women in magic, but it's overwhelmingly male. So fraternal is probably the right word. And, and you know, it's pretty a pretty small community. Uh, if, if there are six degrees of separation in, in general terms, then in magic it's more like two or three degrees of separation. You know, I've, I, if I don't know someone, I can get to them pretty much in one step. Right. Uh, so but there are smaller subgroups that are much more secretive and where it's harder to get access. Uh, you mentioned Ricky J. I I met Ricky back in 1974 and we were friends, but Ricky was very guarded and had a relatively small circle of close friends. And you can picture Ricky with sort of rings around him, uh, like ripples in a pond as to you know how close could you get and there were people in the immediate surrounding ring and then there was a kind of next ring and a ring after that huh. and and most magicians frankly never even got to to a, a, a you know 10 rings out or, or 15 rings out um i was not in ricky's tightest circle but i was reasonably close so we, we got along quite well in fact um but Ricky was very tight, and to get information from him or to get real personal time with him was was something he made difficult. Um, and there are other magicians in similar positions. And and the, the rank-and-file magicians, frankly, some of them don't even know this. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that I see online frequently in magicians' discussion groups has to do with secrets, because, of course, magic is very heavily uh obsessed with the idea of secrets yeah and you'll see occasional discussions i just saw new one recently you know are there real secrets in magic uh and frequently you'll see someone respond no we know everything it's all out there Mm -hmm. and that's a nice pipe dream uh and if that makes people content to believe that fine but in fact, there, there's a lot of information available. Don't, uh, don't misunderstand me, but there is stuff that has been held very tight. There are certain secrets that, that have been held by their creators. Yeah. And never shared with anyone or shared with literally one person. Uh, and, and so there are a whole networks of communication involving information that doesn't go general. Uh and you can make arguments to say that this is a bad thing or that it's a good thing. I think it's a bit of both. (laughs) So, so when you mention someone like, uh, well, the, again, the the most obvious one is Vernon, Di Vernon, who was, uh, an astonishing man. Uh, I got friendly with Vernon during the last couple of decades of his life. He lived to 98. Uh, ninety eight years he died in ninety yeah. he, he lived to the age of ninety eight and from his twenties he was a star among magicians uh, he was He was referred to as the professor and he he got that nickname when he was still in his twenties.
0: The man who fooled Houdini,
1: yeah, which since he had very little respect for Houdini, that was sort of a uh, he was very ambivalent about that title but but the people who booked him said, oh, no, no, that's, that's the, the, the hook. Right? That's the, uh, the commercial thing to say about you. Um, but Vernon was genuinely interested in gambler's techniques, not because he was interested in being a gambling cheat. He had zero interest, as far as I know. Uh, but because he wanted to learn this technical information to figure out ways to apply it to magic. Um, so he ventured sometimes into rather dangerous territories uh, with people who were, were not necessarily fun loving um, and managed to to ingratiate himself and, and, and prove himself because his, his, his own skill level was right. so good uh, that, that they were sometimes willing to share with him. And the, the most famous story about Vernon, which you alluded to, uh, which has been the subject of an entire book called The Professor and the Card Shark," which was written by a fellow named Carl Carl Norman, or did I just screw that up? Carl Johnson. Carl Norman was someone else. Carl Johnson uh, wrote a book some years ago. Uh, Carl knew very little about magic, but, but when he heard about this basic story, he jumped in. Vernon had heard that there was a guy named Kennedy in some mid-American city. I don't even think he knew the city when he started off.
0: I want to say Kansas City. I've heard this story told it, it before. It may, in
1: fact, have been Kansas City. But I think when Vernon started, he didn't even know the city. He just knew <laughs> that somewhere in kind of the middle of the, of the country, there was a guy whose name might be Kennedy. And I don't think he even knew the guy's first name who knew how to do, who had figured out how to do a center deal, which means, a center deal means dealing cards from the middle of the deck but making it look like you're dealing off the top.
0: So just for people listening to this, uh, bottom dealing is something that you might have heard of. Second dealing is even tougher. Middle dealing, you got to get on a bus and go find the
1: guy. That's that's about right. (laughs) You know, there are all sorts of ways of dealing cards from the second to the from the top or from the bottom or even second from the bottom. And there are ways to do this and have been these have been around in some cases for centuries. I mean, playing cards, you know, uh, the the dawn of playing cards is somewhere in the 1500s, basically. and, And the dawn of cheating the playing cards is probably about a week later. So there's been a lot of of, of work and, and, and ideas about this, but how do you even approach the concept of dealing from the center of the deck and it looks like you're dealing off the top? How do you even start? And so when Vernon heard that someone had figured this out and this was something he'd clearly been thinking about himself for years, he dropped everything and said, i'm gonna find this guy and it was a, a journey and with uh, a bunch of false leads and, and he almost gave up and and it it became uh, as i say this this book which is a delight to read and i say that not only because i get thanked in the in the uh, author's mentions but because it's actually a very good book um you mentioned jim Steinmeier. did you read his most recent book
0: which is his most recent? Uh,
1: it's called The Secret History of Magic.
0: I'm currently reading it, and right around me I have Hiding the Elephant, uh-huh. and then a big book of magic, which I, it's called The Magic Book, which I mostly got because I love the artwork and posters, like the lithographs. Uh, yes, yes. But it also has like a ton of stuff that I, like Ricky Jay wrote the foreword, and I,
1: Oh, the Toshin book. Okay. Yes, yeah, and I didn't uh, even know. Together. Jim was involved in putting that together along with Mike Cavney. Yes. Uh, and, and a few others, and Ricky wrote the introduction. It's a Toshin book, so it's one of these incredibly well-produced yes. uh, mammoth yes. coffee table books. And it, it,
0: it sucks to hold, but it's, it's a pleasure yeah, to read. No,
1: it, it's gorgeous, and, and the, the essay content is good as well. Um, beautiful reproductions of stone lithograph posters and the like. Um, just to finish with the Blaine thing, yes. what David Blaine did that was so interesting and smart was he said what's going to and, and he wasn't the only person or the first person to do this, but he was the first person to do it to the extent that he did it he didn't he didn't do it sort of as a as a as, as a an element. He made it the feature, uh, which was to focus on the reactions of the audience yeah. so on that first special you had situations where here's David Blaine on the street doing a trick and the camera is focusing on the people on the street who are freaking out. And in some cases you might see David Blaine do the same trick on the same special. Yeah. And that was unheard of at the time, but, 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 because he was, he understood that the television experience to make it as close to the live experience as possible was to get the viewer at home to join in with the viewers on camera, yeah, and to, to, to change the focus so that David was the catalyst for this. But he wasn't standing there grandstanding and going "ta-da." He was letting that audience reaction kind of take over the moment. Because he he knew. I mean, he's a smart guy. These are all <laughs> smart guys I'm talking about, but. He knew that later you'd remember who caused this reaction. Oh. But he wasn't afraid to let the audience members freaking out. Okay. Dominate the moment because he knew that later you were going to talk about, did you see that woman run down the street screaming at what David Blaine did? Ah,
0: show the pop. Nobody, they know they where he, it came
1: from. Okay. Nobody yes. knew the name of the person who ran down the street. Right. Screaming. But everybody knew David Blaine's name. He got uh, uh, a tremendous foothold into American popular culture with that first special. Um, Since then, uh, it's hard to imagine, but that's 30 years ago.
0: Cut to the guy making the face at WrestleMania 30. You know Brock Lesnar just beat The Undertaker. (laughs)
1: Absolutely. (laughs) But since then, in the last 20 years, I don't think there have been any... I don't think anyone has hit that that position of the national magician. There are a handful of people who have gotten national attention. Chris uh, Angel. Chris Angel certainly has gotten a, a fair amount of PR. Uh, others have certainly maintained their position yeah. or it, like Penn and Teller. Uh, Blaine is still very much around. Just did a a, 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 a Netflix uh, thing. Then there are people like Derek Gaudio, who I just mentioned, or, or uh, Helder Guiramesh, for example. Uh, people who are doing magic and kind of avoiding television. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, Derek got, when Derek was doing his show in New York, uh, he, uh, Stephen Colbert came to see the show and flipped out and said, I want you on my TV show, on my talk show. Yeah. And Derek said, Well, I'm not really crazy about television as a medium for performing magic, so I would be delighted to come on the show and talk about magic and talk about huh. my show. But I don't want to perform anything. And on a certain level, Was you that a mistake? Think, well, I don't know. I don't think Derek thinks it was a mistake. Right. I mean it is weird. Certainly it's it feels weird. Because you associate it with other things, like a, a singer who says, "Well, I'll, I'll come on in your show. I won't sing anything, but I'll talk <laughs> about myself." But in Derek's case, I think he was being true to his vision, because what Derek is doing is a theatrical experience that takes uh, close to an hour and a half. This show that he's been doing, right? The show, it's it, it was an extraordinary show. That accomplished things, took you places you've never been, uh, used magic in ways you've never experienced it, and to come and do a, a little sample. Uh, I, I understand Derek saying, "No, I, I don't want to do that." Yeah, the show to be the show. Uh, interestingly, uh, when the sh- after the show closed, and it closed only because they were done. I mean, they had been doing it for so long they we're tired and we we, we want to move on. What they had done, which they hadn't told anybody about, uh, but it's now been revealed, is they recorded a lot of the shows secretly with cameras, but, but they were hidden cameras. And they spent the last year plus editing all of these different video pieces into a version of the show that is now a documentary movie. Is it out? No. Uh, okay. But it exists, and I've seen it. And it's oh. It's, it's, I, I would not have believed you could capture that show. But they did. Uh, Frank Oz directed it, and wow. the choices they made, it's almost the same as the, as the live show. They've embellished it in a few ways that are small, but effective. Uh-huh. And I, it's not, I'm not going to tell you what they are, right. But they have somehow astonishingly managed, managed to translate the experience of that show into a film form uh, that is almost unbelievable in, in, in that sense. I'm sure you have met comedy writers yes. who aren't very funny but they just know how to write. They know yeah. how to create.
0: It's a math it's an problem.
1: Incredibly good joke. Exactly. But they hand the joke over to someone who really understands yep. delivery and timing, and suddenly it's, it's killer material.
0: Well, um, I'm sure there might be people who are very, like, dexterous with their hands. Uh,
1: yeah. Oh, who, incredibly so.
0: Who just are just a black hole of charisma. There are
1: people who have great chops as well. As we say in the magic field, but you also say that in the comedy field. Yeah. Uh, they have great chops, great technique, and no performing style, no presence, no presentational skill. Yes. And some of them know that and don't inflict themselves on audiences. They, <laughs> inflict themselves. They, they, they teach what they do to other magicians or they publish books or publish things in magazines. There's a whole literature of magic that's very vast. Uh, But having said that, there are also technicians who imagine they have performing skills and and do uh, try to perform in the real world. A Um, professional
0: wrestler with amazing work rate who cannot cut a promo.
1: And we know there are plenty of those. Yeah. Uh, And it's not just the work rate and not just the promos. There are wrestlers who are technically... Superb, right? But they can't tell a story, and I mean that without speaking. Yes, you know, putting promos is talking, and, and that now overlaps with stand up comedy yes. and the like. But telling a story in the ring usually doesn't involve any words, but it's the reacting, it's, it's conveying the idea that now you've gone too far, now I'm gonna pay, you know, now comes payback. And there are wrestlers who can tell those stories, and it translates to a live audience of 15,000 people. Yes. When Dane
0: Cook became popular with no jokes, it made sense to me because I grew up with Hulk Hogan. Okay. Who had everything that you could possibly want in show everything business. Everything wrestling skill Correct. He had a leg drop and some punches.
1: Yeah, he had almost no move set almost you know, yes. no repertoire of, of, of moves of skills but he had a great look for the time for the time he was gargantuan yeah uh and he knew how to sell and how to how to feed i mean these are inside terms but <laughs> how to tell a story in other words in yes. ring that would translate to a huge crowd and he was he was good on the stick as they say he, he was, was so yeah, he became bigger than anyone had, uh, and the national wrestler, yes, and I don't think anyone in the wrestling world, and I don't pretend to fully know that world, but to the extent that I know it, I don't think anyone has ever once said he was a really good wrestler. people he <laughs> about himself I've seen interviews, <laughs> and Hulk Hogan, I, who I've never met, but he seems happy to lie about everything he. If it's to his advantage, he will fabricate even <laughs> into sports stories. And even he doesn't say, and I was a great wrestler. <laughs> Andre even the Giant Hogan, weighed 1,000 pounds, yes, and he right. picked him up for over me, his right. head. Right, but even Hogan doesn't try to convince anyone that he was a technically gifted wrestler. For
0: a well, while, it became it became, uh, it became popular for a while to say, well, if you watch some of his Japanese matches in the 80s. I've,
1: I've heard that said. I haven't seen those matches. I have I've heard people say that he stepped up when he was in Japan. Uh, the implication being that he had to because the, the people working with him <laughs> were, not as, were, were not as easy and yeah, supportive. Yeah,
0: they're going to be a little stiff, um, a little snug.
1: Yeah, um, but I don't know how much of that is legend and how much of that is true. Right, uh,
0: with anything, with them. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, because I found it fascinating, and I think other people will too, What are Max Maven's three questions?
1: Oh, okay. Um, Well, it's interesting that there are actually three questions that I have have established to the point that if you were to ask magicians that question, not all of them, but many of them would be able to tell you. Uh, So this has sort of become a thing. Uh, And it's this. Years ago, I realized that when I'm in an audience... For anything, uh, uh, magic, obviously, but but for anything else, uh, stand-up comedy or what have you, there are always three basic questions that I that I seek to have answered as I'm experiencing this performance. And the first question is, who is this person? POV. Yep. Uh. The second question is What story are they trying to tell me? And when I say story, I don't necessarily mean a linear story of, you know, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. But what's the story? The story, hopefully, is more than simply here's a red ball, now it's green, because that is not much of a story. But I don't come to a, a show with the expectation of a story, of, of what the story's going to be. I come with the expectation that if the show's good, there's going to be a story I'll get out of it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, does that sort of make sense? It Totally. And, and then the third question is, why is it worth my time and attention? That's... And in other words, why should I care?
0: That's the punch in the stomach. Because... You can't answer it if you don't answer the first two, correct?
1: Well, and that's the point, is that the answer to the third question, a a, a sadly frequent amount of time, uh, arguably a majority of the time, the answer to the third question is, it, it isn't worth my time and attention. And the reason is because the performer has not yet answered the first two questions for him or herself. Yeah. The performer you know when you ask the question about a performer who is this person the answer that you're hoping for is not a version of that other performer in in comedy and in magic uh you know the the ones who rise to the top at least artistically not always economically the ones who rise to the top are the ones who who are themselves who have figured out who they are and are not doing a fourth generation dub of someone else and have also figured out what they want to say Hmm. in the silent acts. Uh, What's the story? And that links to what you mentioned when I said the the question of who is this person, you immediately said POV, point of view. And yes, that defines the person and also kind of leads off the story, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, Because I think all artists, the board not just performance artists but you know plastic artists like like uh, the physical artists who work in, in areas like painting and sculpture all artists are basically uh, reporting on a view of the world to the rest of the tribe <laughs> you know the artist goes off goes over the mountain to the other place wherever that is uh... comes back and then in a way that is informative and interesting and sometimes clever and sometimes shocking and sometimes funny and hopefully never uninteresting. The artist reports what he or she experienced that the tribe hasn't been able to experience on their own. Yes. And so to me, that's kind of a, a simplistic description of what artists are doing and I believe that, that magicians and comedians, uh, since those are the two fields we're, we're most primarily talking about today. We're on the same level, and, yes. And wrestlers. But they're all <laughs> capable of artistry. Even if those three fields may be fields that people don't normally say, oh, yes, that's a form of art, that's artistic. Most people are uh, idiots. But but I think they can be artistic. That doesn't mean they are. Uh you know as with every field there are there are lunkheads who, who just figure out the easiest way to gain entry and then do that but the ones who really figure it out do everything that that the greatest painters or or singers or sculptors or whatever the same they do the same thing i'm
0: gonna they, they allow
1: us to see the world in a new way and hopefully do it with with style that is fresh and that helps us re-experience
0: the world. What percentage of your success as you got north of age 40 was gravitas? I'm picturing George Carlin. I'm picturing him trying that at age 25 and having the audience think, what the fuck do you know? And I'm and I'm picturing a mentalist at your level, knowing everything, you know, now being 25 and having them think, get out of here, kid,
1: really insightful question. And I'll answer it, but but slightly circuitously, (laughs) Uh, I got into magic in in a more general sense when I was about seven or eight years old. And mostly I was getting it out of books Hmm. because at that time I didn't know any other magicians. I don't know where to find other magicians, but I did quickly learn that there were magic books in the library, some of which were very good, and then I began to find out uh, when I was in my early teens that there were magazines published about magic, Mm -hmm. and so gradually I began to understand the larger picture, at least some of the larger picture, and so during this period in my teens, uh, I came upon information regarding mentalism. Which is a, a branch of magic that, you know, that isn't identical to other subgroups within magic. Right. But it's part of it. You know, there are d- subdivisions in comedy, right? Yeah. You know, there are storytellers. Yeah. There are people who specialize in one-liners. Right. There are prop comics. Yes. There are uh, comedy duos, mm-hmm. sketch comics, mm-hmm. improv comics, uh I've seen comics whose entire act is based on where you're from. Right, crowd work, guys, yeah. And they get 20 minutes out of it. And so there are a lot of different types of comedy. And in in Magic, the same. There are Mm -hmm. lots of different types. And there's this one really weird side area called (laughs) mentalism, which is, in my use of the term at least, an umbrella title. It doesn't describe only one thing. It's a whole range of things. Uh, it's magic that involves the mind. So it's mystery entertainment. But for me, it, that umbrella includes theatrical hypnosis, memory demonstrations, lightning calculation, you know, where you're doing mathematics in your head, yeah. reading minds, uh, influencing people's behavior through the power of suggestion. It's mm-hmm. a very wide range mm-hmm. within mentalism. And I started to realize that this actually existed as a field when I was somewhere in my mid to late teens is when I started to not only realize that, but started getting my hands in some of the important publications, certain books and magazines that had been published in some cases decades before, uh, but about this field. And I was very, very drawn to it. And at the same time, I had what I now am very thankful for. I had an instinct that told me I was too young to to present this stuff. Oh. And so for a number of years, I read about mentalism. I studied it academically. I'm I'm using the word study here accurately. Hmm. Um, but I didn't perform it. Instead, what I did in performing, I would do card tricks or close-up magic, mm-hmm. or the smaller stuff, or occasionally something stand-up, but nothing where I walked out on stage and said, and now I shall read your mind. Um, so I really waited until I was in my early 20s uh, before I kind of dipped my toe into, into that water. Uh, I had a slight advantage from... From puberty, when my voice changed, ah. I was able to present myself. People always added several years to my age. So when I was 18, people assumed I was in my early 20s. Huh. When I was in my early 20s, people thought I was in my mid to late 20s. And whereas most of the American population runs around trying to find ways to get people <laughs> to think they're younger than they are, uh I was perfectly happy with people thinking I was older because that gave me more authority, Yes, which I instinctively felt was necessary if I was going to be a mentalist. And so I really took the plunge into doing this. Uh, I always uh, uh, say it was about 1975. And, and for those at home playing the math, I was 24. And so I was able to come off as being a few years older than that. And I think that was a good resource for me. I think I would have had a much harder time if I'd started trying to do this uh, much earlier than that. Um, and I'm happily in a position where the older I get, the better I get. And that's partly because the older I get, the more I learn. Right. I more about how to work the crowd, how to deal with a per- particular situation. You know, all the skills you, you hone from performing... And from experience mm-hmm. just keep getting better. Yes. And fortunately I'm I'm in a profession where youth is not the selling point. I know magicians yeah. and some comedians who have sold youth, whose whose whole definition was predicated on oh look how young The industry loves that. Yep. And now there are people I know who are my age and I'm 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 sixty nine. Uh, I am not a kid, uh, but I know performers who are within my age range, You know, who are currently 60-ish to 70-ish in, in that general range, uh, who are going through the torture of the damned. And actually, in some cases, they've been going through that ever since they hit their 40s. Uh, because they've been selling youth, and suddenly even the ones who are in the best shape physically or, you know, the ones who diet and exercise and all of that can no longer pretend the audience is not going to say, Oh, well that person's in their thirties somewhere. Instead, the audience is going to say, Oh, that's, that's a middle-aged person. That's <laughs> someone who's, you know, 50 ish. And, and I have seen the, the, the havoc this, this sets upon certain performers some of whom attempt to make no adjustments to their performing style or their grooming style, and it becomes embarrassing to That's, see uh, someone they... who is, I, 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 I'll bet you're thinking of several people, but someone who is in his or her 40s or 50s but trying to be hip and in their 20s, and the audience is thinking this doesn't work. And And you think you're fooling me, and you're not, uh, and I've seen it get even worse for people when you know when they get just that much older, yeah, but I have also seen people who have been able to adjust to getting older uh, and adjust well. Now in my case, I firmly believe that age enhances what I do mm. It stands in the. The only thing age is 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 not good for in terms of my career uh, is there are certain areas, most of them having to do with television, where producers say, "No, nope, we don't want anybody right. who looks like you're over 30. Right. And I know I've lost television work off the fact that I'm I do not look to be a kid. Um, <laughs> so I, I absolutely know that I that I. I don't do much television work anymore and I used to do a fair amount. Uh, And I know that is almost entirely because of producers who think to themselves, we're not going to invest money into anyone over the age of 25. Um, And you get sort of two choices. You you can get angry about it, which is not going to get you on television, or you can say, okay, that's the landscape. I'll find somewhere else to, to go. And that's my, my solution.
0: I've only been on the other end of that where I've had to follow at the laugh factory, uh, Shelly Berman after he wiped the f- goddamn floor with his jokes. And then I went up there and I was like 28 and uh, I was like, I have no chance in hell right now. Uh,
1: I was, I never met Shelly Berman, but I was such a fan and I, I first became aware of him somewhere when i was a kid so probably around 1960 or early 60s back in the days when people listened to lp records Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. and i couldn't have been a bigger fan uh and yeah the thing about that type of comedy uh and the thing about what i do i mean there is that overlap Uh, they don't require youth and in fact in certain formats age is a bonus is, a, is, a, is a, a a good factor and they're also not athletic <laughs> you know, yeah. there are magicians uh, who who leap around the stage ah. you know they leap into a box or they pick up the assistant and put them where they're supposed to be and 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 you know age is gonna wear that down there, there, I know a performer who used to always put a magician who, who who's still around, but I won't say his name, but who, who used to always take a bow by doing a somersault. So he would do this incredibly energetic act; it was great. And he would leave the stage, and the the audience was was cheering and applauding. And he would come back and do a somersault up into a tada pose, and it was the impact was great. And uh, at a certain point within the last decade or so, he just stopped doing it. And you didn't have to ask him why. He stopped doing it because <laughs> he's too old to do the damn thing every, didn't every night. Ha-
0: no, one, no one asked me why I don't do the somersault anymore. And,
1: <laughs> and uh, you know, but that's not, uh, that's never been part of my work. I pretty much come on stage. I mean, what I do on stage isn't that different, different from most stand-up comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that it's mostly me standing behind a microphone talking to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I should be able to, and, you know, if if we ever get back to having live shows again, I should be able to continue doing this uh, for, for, for another 10 or 20 years if, if, yeah. if, if other things don't knock me down. But age should, should not be uh, a barrier for me in, the, in in terms of being able to do what I do. And and uh, I love the story you just told about having to follow Shelley Berman. <laughs> How old was he at the time? Oh, my God, he was
0: uh he seemed very elderly he was on oh. curbier enthusiasm okay
1: so by then he was like 80
0: yeah i want to yeah. say he was I mean, like i remember wanting to look it up and saying he was in his late 80s
1: yeah i mean he died recently not yeah. that oh but he was well into his 90s when he died i'm pretty sure
0: i posted the photos of it cuz i took pictures of him cuz i remember thinking like this is a big deal that yep. that that, uh, that he's here And he knew exactly who
1: he was, you know, like there was, there was a terrific comedy magician from Ireland named Billy McComb. Okay. Who had a very long and diverse career. He worked upscale. He worked the palladium in London, for example, did a fair amount of television in in the fifties and sixties. In the seventies, he did a lot of, of, well-paying cruise ship gigs, but he just kept performing. I mean, he died eventually, but when Billy was well into his 70s, he just loved performing, so he kept getting gigs. Mm -hmm. And it was during this time, which would have been in the early 90s, I guess, mid-90s, late, I forget, I'd have to check, but Amazing Jonathan was doing a run, an extended run, at the, uh, the Sahara Casino in Las Vegas. And the, the structure of his show was he would have two, maybe three opening acts, each of which would do 15 minutes or so of comedy and magic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not necessarily both. Um, and then he would come on and do like an hour. So it made for a, a good, solid show that ran... 90 200 minutes mm-hmm. and one of his favorite opening acts was billy mccomb huh. and billy was at that point pushing 80 his hair was completely white he had a big white mustache uh you would not look at him and say oh 50 or 60 right you looked at him and said elderly yes and Amazing Jonathan's audience in Vegas was skewed young, and they expected to see young entertainers. Mm. And I went one night. Billy invited me to come see the show, and I, I, I went. And I, I'm not sure. He may have been the, the very first one on. I don't remember. But I do remember that when he came out, he walked out rolling out a table with props on it. And you could feel the whole audience just sort of <laughs> uh, just sigh thinking, oh, uh, whoever this is, this, we're just going to have to put up with this for the next 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah. And Billy, who had a, a charming uh, voice with, with an Irish accent, yeah. which I won't try to do, Right. but his, his opening line after he set the table, he, he took the microphone and put it into a lavalier, and then he said, I'm going to have to make this quick, because it's rice pudding night at the home. <laughs> now, that made you laugh and I didn't give it good delivery. That's,
0: that disarms you immediately though. The
1: audience exploded. I know what you're thinking. Exactly. He tackled it in the first 30 seconds and it was funny and the delivery was perfect and they were in the palm of his hand for the next 10 or 15 minutes and the younger acts who were also doing the opening stuff couldn't measure up to him. He walked away with it until Jonathan came out and had the star turn and, and, and was able to own the audience in his own way. But but this was such a wonderful example. Uh, and I'm sure with Shelley Berman, there was a similar thing of just mm-hmm. using his age to his advantage. And yes. all that, yeah. collect, that, that collected experience and so forth. I
0: noticed that there were quotes from Muhammad Ali and Orson Welles that are uh, often mentioned when your name comes up of Muhammad Ali saying that you're a dangerous man and Orson Welles like
1: singing your praises. Do you happen to have any stories about either uh, one of them? Um, I only met Orson Welles face to face once. Oh, we, we wound up, I sent him a booklet that I'd written which he liked mm-hmm. and he wrote me a letter. And so we wound up corresponding him, he had a, a, a strong interest in magic and mentalism. We wanted a corresponding. He did uh, at least one routine of mine uh, on television, hmm. something I, I published. Um, and then I got to come to L.A. This is when I was still living in Boston. But I came to L.A. in, I believe it was early 78. Uh, I'd been to L.A., but I, I went to L.A. in order to be on the Merv Griffin show. Was that Which, the one with the Zsa Zsa? Yes, it was. Well, huh. you... you. You've been stalking me. I, um, I have, just for yes. this. <laughs> so uh, so I'm in my hotel room uh, the day before doing the Merle Griffin show with no particular plans. Uh, I know some people in L.A., but I'm not particularly connected, and the phone rings. And I pick it up, and this unmistakable voice says, Max. <laughs> and I said, yes. He said, it's Orson. I said, yes. He said, what are you doing for lunch? <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't know. He said, you're having lunch with me. And I met him at uh, Ma Maison. Now, today, Ma Maison is a, is a hotel in Beverly Hills. Uh, but back in 1978, Ma Maison was a restaurant. It was the most exclusive restaurant in L.A. It had an unlisted phone number. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was a kind of legendary place it was set back from the street it was in Beverly Hills but set back from the street uh-huh. so you couldn't actually see the restaurant itself you saw trees and, and you know some feet back you could sort of make out this restaurant Orson Welles ate there I think several times a week several times a day as it looked and, well, yeah. and he <laughs> commanded the best table in the restaurant Sure, the, the premier table in the front and so I sat at that table with Orson Welles for something like three or four hours. Uh, and it was just a thrilling thing. The wow. conversation obviously went into lots of magical things, but also uh, movies and life, and it was just great. And after that, uh, I never saw him again. Uh, but we did continue to exchange uh, mail, and I had a couple of phone calls. Uh, but mostly by mail. And in one letter, he wrote that incredible statement. Wow. Yours is the most creative mind in magic. Wow. I've been quoting it ever since. I I mean, yeah. The Ali story is a little different, but there's a story to it. Uh, Ali was a big magic fan. And kicked out of the magic castle, correct? No, No, I don't believe he was ever kicked out of the castle. He came to the castle on numerous occasions. He had this weird phase he went through where he loved magic tricks, but decided that it was somehow immoral to fool people. (laughs) And so he would do this trick where he would vanish a little red handkerchief. And then he would show the gimmick that he used to vanish it.
0: I just love him. I just love him. He made
1: magicians upset, uh, or some magicians upset. Right. My feeling is if you're Muhammad Ali... I'll find other things to talk to you about. I don't give about So, but I met Ali on on a dozen occasions. I would say because mm-hmm. he would show up at magic events, came to see my show uh, at least once, um, and he every time I saw him, he he would almost always uh, at some point when we would be chatting, or I he would ask him to show him some tricks, do some tricks. But on more than one occasion, he would say to me, "Where are you from?" Now, his memory was a little shot, you know, at, in his later years. Yeah, And so the first time he asked me that, I just figured he was asking and I told him. But then he asked me another time and he asked me almost every time. And I, it finally, I understood what the, the meaning behind the question was. He was asking, where do you live? Because if it's near me, then maybe we can get together sometime and not just bump into each other. Yeah. But he never, he never did follow up. Uh, but he, he would always say, where are you from? But on one occasion, I was working uh, a nightclub in, oh God, uh, I was in Virginia and it's an expensive resort beach. And I can't think of the name of the beach. So my memory is going the way of. <laughs> Muhammad, but but a, a very upscale beach resort in Virginia. If I hear it, I'll know it. Right. In a nice nightclub. And the owner of the nightclub, who had a lot of money, said, I'm having an event tomorrow, and tomorrow's Sunday, so you're off. Uh, And the event is for several hundred of my friends, because I am giving a thoroughbred racing horse worth hundreds of thousands of dollars as a gift to an Arabian sheik. I don't remember which country, but this was one of these, you know, absurd things where this guy was magnanimously giving a super expensive horse to this obscenely rich guy who would eventually be doing something else for him. <laughs> and so he was making it into a, an event. So he said, so I'm doing this big kind of outdoor barbecue for all my friends, but I'm having dinner inside my home uh, with the, the, the Prince or sheikh, or whatever his title was. And his entourage, which will include Muhammad Ali. Would you come and do some card tricks for them after dinner? Now, he didn't offer me a dime to do this, by the way. (laughs) But I thought to myself, you know what? As many times as I've met Ali and I've occasionally shown something to him. I've never been in a circumstance where he would say something that I could quote. Ah, it would be worth going to this million, multi-millionaire's house and being the after-dinner entertainment for free if I could get a quote from Ali. Yes. So I said, yes, I'll do it. So they, they arranged to pick me up, and they brought me over to this place. And maybe it wasn't a Sunday. I don't know. Maybe I even had a show that night. This might have been an afternoon thing. I'm, it's all vague in my head. This is 30-plus years ago. Uh, and... In this guy's house, there is a dining room that's huge and this huge table that's uh, actually like a big square ring put together, but very elegantly appointed uh, with all of these members of the prince's entourage, uh, plus the, the owner of the hotel and a couple of his more important friends. And in among all of them is Ali. So dessert and coffee have been served and I am brought on. And I greet everyone and I take out a deck of cards and I start working. And all the time I'm working, I'm paying great attention to Muhammad Ali. <laughs> I'm waiting for the I'm waiting for the poll quote. And he keeps, he loves what I'm doing. Yeah. And he keeps giving me completely unusable reactions. Because he's he keeps doing things like this. Huh. Mmm. <laughs> Yeah. So I mean it's all yeah, stuff that yeah. in the moment, if I if I could have a clip of him doing that, it would make me look great, but none of this is quotable. Right. You know, nice. That's it's just not enough. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, this is this is gonna be a wash. I'm gonna be donating my free services and get nothing out of it. Yeah. So I'm I'm now at a point where I've worked I've done a card trick for everybody there. I've worked my way around this table. And I'm now doing a little extra material all in proximity to Ali. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, at this point, I'm overstaying my time. Yeah. I can feel it. I can feel the owner and the people there kind of going, this guy's really good, but when is he going to answer <laughs> it? This is, You know, we get it. Your magic tricks are fun. And I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm pushing it. Yeah. And so finally I think to myself, okay, now you're abusing these people. Uh, just accept the fact that this, this event has been a waste. And so finish this trick that you're doing and say good night and, and leave. And I'm having this conversation with myself and I get to the end of the, of the trick and just as I'm about to say so, thank you, enjoy the rest of your evening. Just as I'm about to say that, Ali turns to the person next to him and says, "This man is dangerous." <laughs> and I bark. I mean, I blurted out louder than I intended. I'll quote you on that <laughs> in front of witnesses. And then I said, "I hope everybody has a wonderful evening." and I left, and I had my Ali quote, which I used oh, to That is super. I'll I'll fill you in on a secret, and this will be our our way of wrapping this up. Yes. Uh, The Amazing Jonathan documentary is, as you well know, amazing. I I mean, it's only coincidental that it's about a guy named Amazing. Mm -hmm. It is an amazing documentary. It's funny. It's unexpected. It takes turns you don't expect at all. Uh, It's well made. It's put together in a very intriguing way. And your comment to me when you got in touch with me was that you had really enjoyed my reaction. I'm, in, I'm interviewed on that documentary, but they don't use very much of the interview. What they mostly use are my facial takes reacting to as certain things happen. And you're not the only person who has said that to me. I've been told by quite a number of people, oh, I saw the Amazing Jonathan documentary. Your reactions made me laugh out loud. So the secret is, none of those reactions is actually reacting to what it looks like I'm supposed to be reacting to. Of course not. I came into a studio uh, because I was asked, you've known The Amazing Jonathan a long time, would you do an interview? We're doing a documentary about it. And I said, okay, I've done plenty of talking head interviews for documentaries. You mentioned Richard Turner earlier.
0: Yeah, you were in that one also. Yes,
1: there I I, I do okay when it comes to sound bites specific, specifically <laughs> regarding magic and stuff. So I came in and I talked for maybe half an hour. They asked me various questions about Jonathan, about what he's like, about I remember we talked a bunch about some of his television performances, both ones that went well and ones that didn't. Uh, It was was an interesting conversation, and after 30-whatever minutes, they thanked me. I unhooked the microphone and and left. Weird Al Yankovic was was coming in as I was going out, and obviously to the interview that they show moments of uh, on the documentary. I knew nothing about all of the extra surprise elements in the, the Amazing Jonathan documentary. I knew nothing about that there was more than one documentary happening. yeah. Uh, that there were, I don't want to say too much because I'll, I'll, I'll let you save that for your interview. The point is I knew nothing about this. Right. I knew I'd been asked to talk about Jonathan who I've known for a long time we're not close friends but we're friendly and we've been on the same bill together and, and hung out a bit um, so I was asked to come in and give some opinions and comments about his life and career that's it so all of the reactions that you thought were so fitting yeah they show me reacting to weird changes of information where suddenly ben the producer learns something that rocks his world and turns everything upside down and they cut to me with a reaction as if i've just heard this same information Uh (laughs) completely not that wow Uh, exactly the opposite there's a fairly famous uh thing in film and i actually looked for it online to uh to be able to pronounce the name correctly it's called the kuleshov effect Hmm. you ever heard of that i haven't here's the deal back in the 19 teens there was a filmmaker in the soviet union named lev kuleshov okay and what he did was remember this is pretty early in in the history of film he took footage he, he, he filmed footage of a very famous actor of the day, sitting, I think, in a chair, maybe at a table, with a a neutral expression on his face. And then he edited that together with other footage, oh. so you could see uh, a, a footage of a sumptuous meal being delivered on a tray, mm. you know, with the steam coming up from 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 the lavish feast and then they'd cut to this neutral faced actor (laughs) or they would put it after a a footage of a child in a coffin you know a dead kid Yeah, or various other things and then they showed these combinations to audiences and said what do you feel that this actor is expressing and people when they saw it coming right after the food they said he looks hungry yeah And when they showed it right after the dead girl, well, he looks miserable. He looks sad. And so it's the Kalishev effect, a Kalishev effect that that you experience in this amazing Jonathan documentary, which I find to be highly amusing. I'm I'm perfectly good with it. (laughs) But but I think it's kind of interesting to note that nothing that I'm doing or saying, and, and I do have a few words here and there uh but but they're like snippets of part part sentences or something and you put it together and say that say to yourself so he's reacting to what (laughs) we've all just learned and the answer is no not (laughs) not a single one of those uh is is based on any of that knowledge i did find out a lot of the story before the film was finished i found out some of the story from jonathan who initially tried to kind of drag me in on it in a weird way Yeah, because he initially, he initially told me there's more than one movie being made, but I'm only just finding this out, which was horseshit. But, but he was, (laughs) I I realize now he was trying to see if he could string me into some weird situation. Yeah. Feeling like maybe I had agreed to be interviewed by someone I shouldn't have said yes to. Because that guy never, Ben never proved to me that I was, that, that he had licensing from Jonathan. Yeah. I just assumed he did because I'd met him through a different project so I knew who he was. And yeah. I just figured no one would be that audacious. So, so f- momentarily, Jonathan started to try and pull me into the nonsense. Um, and then gradually I began to hear more about it. And then when I finally saw the movie... Uh, I, I I enjoyed it and, and was also very, very <laughs> amused by all of these takes. I have no memory as to what I'm reacting to.
0: <laughs> it could have been, I feel like um, sometimes when they choose to go that route, they'll change a light bulb or something. Yeah, And then you're exactly. just like, you're going. Like,
1: there may have been dead time that yeah. I was just sort of thinking of something else. Or there may have been a statement that had nothing to do with. Yeah. You know, I don't know. All I know is I'm delighted that you like my reaction so much, (laughs) many, and that they are completely uh, um, based on on the, they're they're a demonstration of the Kulishev effect. I think that that makes it, you
0: would think that that would make it, like, ruin it to some extent. I think it makes it better. (laughs) Oh, I love the
1: fact that it's just one more layer of, of, of kind of, It's another layer of fraud on a movie that's all about fraud. (laughs) There's
0: too many layers of fraud and it stacks up somehow into like one of the most like authentically like wonderful things I've seen in a long time.
1: I think it's a terrific documentary. I'm pleased I'm in it. Even if I am, even if I'm there under somewhat false pretext.
0: (laughs) I hope you enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed talking to him. R.I.P. Max Maven.